Let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Father God, again, we thank you um, for this time. God, we thank you for um, the, the opportunity um, to, to join together virtually, um, to uh, God be in community um, virtually. Um, God, to open your word together, to think about it together, um, to pray together and to sing together, um, even though we are separated by, by space, God. Um, God, we thank you for the blessings of church as we are, are in week eight or nine of, of this time of quarantine, God. Um, uh, we recognize even more um, deeply um, the importance of community and, and the design that you have for, for your church and the way we are supposed to um, care and love and encourage and be with one another. Uh, Father, we thank you for the blessings of that community. Um, we pray that as, as we get things um, back to normal, that you would continue to bless and to, to mitigate the circumstances of, of uh, this this. COVID crisis around us, um, that you would keep us healthy, um, that you would allow us um, uh, to meet, that you would give wisdom to our uh, governing officials, God, and then again, that you would have mercy on our, our church and our community, on our state, our nation, and on our world. God bless us during this time as we, as we open up your word, shine the light of the Holy Spirit on it, um, make us see it rightly. Um, encourage us by it, convict us by your word. Uh, let us see your goodness and glory, and God, let the gospel be demonstrated in it. Uh, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things again in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've uh, got your Bible, if you're not already there for the passage that India just read for us, um, if you would turn to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to be looking again at verses 1 through 11. Um, this is an awesome passage. Obviously, it's the Word of God, and they're all awesome passages, right? Um, but this is a particularly awesome text, and the reason is, is or at least part of the reason is, is because you see such a clear picture of multiple things in it. There's a beautiful picture of calling in this passage. There's a beautiful picture of, of discipleship. And ultimately, there's a beautiful <laughs> picture of uh, the gospel itself in um, this these short 11 verses. Okay, And so I'm just going to go ahead and jump in, and, and we're going to get going on it. And so so to, to, at the intro there, sort of at the beginning, um, starting in verse 1, it says, On one occasion, um, and I'll read it again kind of to, to refresh the section that we're, that we're looking at. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. All right, so so here's as as, as to begin our, our our passage. Here's a little maybe narrative explanation of of what's going on because I think we might um, ask certain questions about about the text if we've been paying attention to how the story is progressing. Okay, so at this point, um, the Gospel of Luke, Luke as 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 the Gospel writer, um, has not told us um, that Jesus has any sort of official disciples yet. Okay, this is in Luke's Gospel the calling of his first disciples. Disciples. And yet, when he comes and he begins preaching in Capernaum, he seems to have a connection already with Peter, right? So we've seen already last week, uh, he came to, to Peter's house. He healed um, Peter's mother-in-law. 
And so it seems to be the case that he already has some sort of connection with Peter and his family. Well, the reason for that, and we see this as we read the other gospel accounts, particularly in this case in in the gospel of John, um, John tells us that Peter's brother Andrew uh, was a disciple of John the Baptist before he was a disciple of Jesus. And so when Jesus was baptized, John the Baptist pointed out Jesus as the Messiah. If you remember, we, we, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so what happens is John points that out to Andrew and, and another unnamed um, disciple and, and says, um, he, he's the one, he's the Messiah. You should go and follow him now. And so what happens is Andrew and this other disciple, they go and ask Jesus if they can join him, and then they follow him down to Capernaum. And so um, I don't know about you, but that, those kind of things help me. It kind of get, helps me get a picture in my head of, of the relationships and how these things are connected. And, and Peter just doesn't pop up out of the story out of nowhere. There's a reason why Jesus is connected to him. And so, so we, Having said that, what we know is that Jesus is obviously, or Peter has obviously met Jesus, right? Um, he has even seen Jesus do some incredible things. Um, he's seen Jesus heal. He's seen Jesus um, perform these exorcisms. Um, but, but probably, and we, and we have to do a little bit of speculation here, right? Because the gospel writers don't just flesh out the, 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 the personality and the psychological kind of underpinnings of, of these different personalities. But, but we got a, we got a feeling, I think, that, that, Peter is is a little different maybe than Andrew. So Andrew um, has has gone off to follow this this strange prophet in the wilderness, right? Um, we've talked with a couple of y'all about uh, this the, the television series uh, The Chosen. And there's a funny scene in one of them where they're talking about how Andrew has gone and followed Creepy John. Um, because I'm sure John was sort of a strange guy, right? And so Andrew has gone out into the wilderness to, to be a disciple of, of John the Baptist, this, this prophet, but Peter has stayed home, right? Um, he's continued in the family business. He's continued working hard in, in the fisherman trade, um, that he and his family were about, right? And so I've got a feeling like Peter was probably a doer. You could say, okay. Um, I, it would not surprise me if G, uh, if Peter kind of had the attitude of, you know, I, I don't know that I have time to to go out there and follow Jesus and 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 be running around um, after him in the wilderness. I've, I've got things to do, right? There's 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 business to be taken care of. Um, now that's not to say that he's dismissive of Jesus, um, exactly, right? Uh, even in this passage, he calls him master in the next section. Okay, which acknowledges that he, uh, Peter has some sort of respect or, or, or deference at least. Um, but at the same time, his response is different from Andrew's, right? So anyway, um, Jesus knows Peter. And Andrew may have even been in this crowd that Jesus is teaching as he, as he steps into the boat um, to keep those crowds from hemming in on him, right? And we talked about that last week too. The idea that these crowds keep on pressing in on Jesus because, uh, yes, some of them are there for, for his teaching and, and, but others are there because they want to see a healing. Some of them, they were there just because they want to see something amazing happen. Um, some of them are re- there because they have some kind of illness themselves and want to be healed from it. And so the people are hemming in around him and, and, and kind of suffocating him. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to get into a boat and then cast off a little bit into the water. That way he's got a buffer between him and the people, but he can still teach, right? Which we said again last week is why he came. He came so that he could, he could teach and, and the situation, um, with these crowds is making that, um, difficult to impossible. Okay. 
And so uh, it says after he finished speaking, after he finished teaching, and, and maybe the crowds had started to disperse maybe, he turns to Simon, who apparently is on the shore um, uh, cleaning his nets, and he says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Okay, now imagine the scene again. Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus is a carpenter's son. Uh, Jesus is from the hills of Nazareth. Okay, when I say that, uh, hear me say, not water. Okay, he's not from around the Sea of Galilee. Um, and then Jesus tells Peter how to do his job functionally, right? Um, this lifelong fisherman, um, someone who is even in the fishing business, and Jesus says, hey, you know what, if you'll just cast off again and go out into the deep water, let your nets down, you'll catch some stuff, okay? Um, I can only imagine the, what Peter is feeling and thinking when that happens, okay? Um, so we have a, we have a professional, uh, fisherman, a fishing guide in our church, a guy named Josh. And, um, I can imagine what would happen is if I was with Josh somewhere and then I started telling him, uh, giving him fishing tips, right? Um, telling him how to do his job, especially if that advice was contrary to what he knew and his experience had already taught him, right? And I have a feeling like um, he would look at me and say, Ash, you know, no offense, but but you don't know what you're talking about, right? Um, you're not a fisherman. In all honesty, I've never caught a fish in my entire life. I've been fishing several times, but I've never caught a fish, which I think is kind of sad. Um, but but I don't know anything about fishing. Why would Peter, a lifelong fisherman, listen to Jesus, a mountain boy carpenter, uh, about fishing? Why would he listen to him at all? Okay. That seems, I think, to be P Peter's basic attitude. And yet he agrees anyway, right? So in verse five, he says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, caught nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. Okay, so he basically says, look, Jesus, uh, we are worn out. We are empty handed. Um, we have been all out all night um, fishing waters that we know, and we have caught nothing because the fish just aren't biting today. All right. I, I can sympathize with that. Right. I hate the feeling of working long and hard at something and then at the end of it, having nothing to show for it. Right. It is super annoying and exhausting and tiring, right? And you're just over it. You just want to be done with it, okay? And I'm sure that's how Peter and these other fishermen feel. But nevertheless, he says, but at your word, I'll let down the nets, all right? So again, we have to be careful reading tone into the text. We have to be careful reading um, uh, the personalities of these these characters into the text, right? It's possible that when Jesus says, at your word, I'll let down the nets, it's possible Peter is being very deferential and, and obedient to Jesus. But I have a feeling that that's not exactly the case. I have a feeling that Peter is basically doing what uh, maybe you did, certainly I did with my parents when I was a kid. And that was to say, when I was told to do something that I didn't like um, by my parents, um, I would say, uh, you know what? I don't agree. Uh, I don't want to do this. Uh, it's not going to work anyway. I think it's a dumb idea. But just so that I can say I told you so, um, I'll do what you ask, right? I'll do it your way, and we'll watch this whole thing fall apart, and then at least I'll be able to say I told you, told you so, right? Do you ever get smart-mouthed with God? Uh, 
do you ever want to prove that his way of doing something won't work? Me neither. I don't ever do that either. Um, but to be fair, again, Peter doesn't know Jesus the way we know Jesus, right? He doesn't know Jesus because he hasn't seen the whole story yet. So, so he's looking at this guy, Jesus, and he's like, certainly Jesus is a man who is being used uniquely by God, but that doesn't mean that he knows anything about fishing. And there's no reason, maybe if he tells me something about the, the Old Testament, the Bible, I'll listen to him. But if he's talking about fishing, I don't, I don't see any reason why I should listen to him. But he says he will. He goes and does it. And then what happens? The catch comes in. All right, this, this incredible catch comes in, verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Okay, so right, a miraculous catch ensues at Jesus' word. So many fish, right? Too many right? For too many for the nets, too many for the boat, too many for additional boats even. Now, now think about it. If you were in that situation, if you were there as one of those fishermen or somebody watching, how would you respond, right? With amazement? I, th I think that's right. And certainly they do respond in amazement, right? Verse 9 and 10 tell us, it says that they were astonished by the catch. And that includes James and John, who are who are partners in the fishing business with Peter. But Peter's reaction, Peter's response is not just with astonishment, but it seems to be with this combination of humility and something that we would probably call shame. Verse 8 says, when, P when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus displays his glory, his power, his authority, his truth, his dependability, right? Um, he told him what was going to happen, and it, and it happened, right? Jesus does this, and Peter responds in, in humility and in shame. Because here's the reality. And this is true for all of us. And I think we can relate. Man, there's so many places in the scriptures that I, I that we can relate so much to Peter because Peter does the same things that we do. When Jesus displays his glory oftentimes, and we have been antagonistic to it in some ways, it makes us feel small, right? It makes us feel foolish. It makes us recognize our weaknesses and our ineptness at life, Right? It makes us recognize our inability. It makes us recognize our doubt. But here's the deal. Watch closely because in the midst of this, there is beauty and hope and truth that comes out of this. Because here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Those feelings of, of shame or, or, or even or guilt or whatever, those are right feelings. Those are normal when you stand before the glory of God, before the awesomeness and the glory of Jesus. When we stand before Jesus, there should be an immediate sense of our inadequacy. An immediate sense of, of the distance that separates us and Jesus. 
I love it because we've during this quarantine time we've been reading some C.S. Lewis. I've been kind of reading a bunch of C.S. Lewis in general um, over the last few months. Um, and you see this all the time in in Lewis's writings, especially in the Chronicles of Narnia. Right, we, we see these various characters uh, who encounter Aslan, and more often than not, as soon as they are in, having an encounter with Aslan, they realize what they really want to do is just keep their mouths shut and look at the ground. Okay, because immediately they recognize the the. Uh, the inadequacy of this, their weakness and their ineptness. They recognize these things in his presence, right? You see that same con- concept over and over biblically, okay? The, the passage that we use as, as sort of the, the template for our service, service Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, uh, it's the same thing that happens to him in Isaiah chapter 6. So in Isaiah chapter 1 through 5, Isaiah has been speaking very confidently about the sins of Israel. He's been speaking very confidently about God's impending judgment on the nation, about God's impending judgment on the city of Jerusalem, about how they are doing everything wrong. And yet, when he actually has a vision of God, when he is standing before the throne of God and sees the glory of God, what does he say? He says, woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and dwell among a people of unclean lips, right? In the light of God's glory, our first reaction should be, and, 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 and hold off before you get weirded out by this, but our first reaction should be to get away from him, right? To run from God, um, to hide from him as soon as possible, because we sense that shame and that guilt and that distance that is ours because of our, not only our weakness, but because of our unbelief. I think you even see it in children. At least I have seen it in my children. Every single one of my kids, when they were little, you know, uh, four or five years of age or whatever, when they would get in trouble for something, they would all do this. You would try to talk to them. I would even try to reach out to them in, in, in kindness, um, or, or just try to talk to them. And oftentimes, you know what they would do? They would turn away from me and say, go away. I don't want you to look at me. Okay. And that is a perfect picture of, of, of our hearts with God. Um, sometimes my kids would even use those exact words, right? Not out of rebellion. They weren't being defiant, I don't think, in that moment. But they were doing it out of this a guilt, a shame of knowing that somehow they had done something they were not supposed to do. They had missed the mark that was set for them, okay? And so, again, I'll say it like this. Guilt and shame, or at least a certain kind of guilt and shame, are right responses, and the problem is, is we have a world that hates guilt. It hates shame. It denies it, right? It tells you to ignore it, to rise above it, to look your shame in the face and tell it that you can live as you please. And what I'm going to tell you is that a life that ignores the shame and the guilt is, is a hell-bound life, right? You cannot live that way. But here's the deal. And you might be sitting there saying, man, Ash, didn't we just sing a song about how there's no guilt in life? Like, what are you talking about when you say that, that, that the guilt or shame is a necessary thing? Here's what's important, right? Shame, that shame, that uh, it's not something that you can skip. But it's not the end of the story either. It's not even the most important part of the story. Because here's the reality, man, and this is confession on my part. I find myself at this point daily, at the point that multiple times a day, 
right? At the point that Peter is at, when he looks to Jesus and says, go away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man, right? If I've, right after I've yelled at my kids, or I have been short with my wife, or I've said something to one of you guys out there that has been hurtful or snarky or, or whatever, I have failed at trusting God for the umpteenth time that day on any number of issues, I say the same thing in my heart. I say, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, right? I ask God, what are you even doing wasting your time with me, Jesus? I don't deserve to be a Christian. I don't deserve to be a pastor. We would all be better off if you would just move on. I'll go my way. You go yours. You continue to do your thing, and I'll just go somewhere else. And in fact, there's a part of me, I want him to, right? I want God to go away because I'm sick of feeling that not measuring up guilt inside of me, that not measuring up missing the mark daily, hourly, moment by moment, And the truth is, I wanted to be able to say to God, I told you so. I told you it wasn't going to work. But now I feel as if Jesus is looking at me saying, well, I told you so, right? And so maybe you could say it this way. I'm sick in my soul of the judging gaze of Jesus. I think lots of people feel that way. I wonder if some who walk away from the faith feel that way regularly because it just gets exhausting to feel that way all the time, to mess up so often, which we all do, and then to still have to look a holy God in the face. But here's the thing, right? And this is the key, because at this point you're listening going, I think Jesus, I mean, I think Ash is crazy. I think everything he said is off the rails, Here's the thing. I've gotten it wrong and you've gotten it wrong. We've gotten it flipped completely upside down. We have said that shame is wrong and that God's gaze on us is judgment. And yet that's not the fact. It's the exact opposite. Shame is actually a right response, but God's gaze on us is mercy. And that's the gospel. That is Jesus' call to us in this passage. Because look what he says next, right? Peter has said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Two clauses, right? Two super important clauses. The first one, do not be afraid. So at first glance, again, we might think, afraid is not the problem right now, God. Fear isn't the issue. Uh, that doesn't seem to be what's going on in, in Peter's conscience. It doesn't seem like he's scared, but the reality is, is it is. It is what's going on. Because anyone who has ever felt that shame and that guilt realizes that one of the worst aspects of it is the fear that we have disqualified ourselves. Disqualified ourselves from love, or from belonging, or from acceptance, right? If there is a test, then I've failed it. If there is some kind of qualification, then I don't meet those qualifications. If Jesus is looking for some kind of blue chip follower, uh, I ain't it, 
And as a result, there's not going to be a place for me. We fear that we will be cast out. We fear that we will be rejected. And Jesus sees that. He sees through the front and he says, Simon, don't fear. Because the reality is, is your sin and your doubt and your failure has not disqualified you. Because your holiness and your conviction and your success were never the things that were going to make you right in the first place. Your worth is in Jesus Christ. His election, his calling, his righteousness, his sacrifice. Your worth is fixed in Christ. And so when he says, do not fear, he is saying, there is still a place for you. Not because you're worthy, Simon Peter, but because Jesus stands on the shore saying, come and follow me. I invite you to come and be a part of this. And that that is all the more incredible because of the next thing that he says. Because Jesus says he doesn't just have a place for you, but he has a job for you. From now on, you will be catching men. From now on, you will be catching men. You will be casting the net of the gospel, and you will be bringing people into the boat of the kingdom. You will not be able to contain the abundance on your own. Others will have to come and be a part of this thing too. They will have to join in on this miraculous catch of lives and souls for the kingdom. Because the miracle wasn't just about helping Peter after a frustrating night of fishing, right? And it wasn't even just a miracle to prove Jesus' authority and power, although it certainly did that. The miraculous catch was a symbol and an illustration of the ministry that Jesus was calling Peter to and the ministry that he is calling you and I to. But again, Peter's got to think, no, Jesus, I'm not the man for the job. I've demonstrated that I'm an unfaithful idiot. But I love the insight that the other gospel writers give on this passage as they record the story. Because Mark and Matthew, when they tell this story, Jesus does not just say, you will be catching men or you will be fishing for men. But instead he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What we notice is that Jesus' call not only qualifies us for the job, but it equips us for the job too. Jesus is the one who is going to do the work. You just have to follow. You just have to go with him in this calling. And so what do they do? What does Peter do? And in fact, in this passage, what do James and John, who were standing there watching and, and, and having all this stuff happen to, what do they do? It says, verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You see why this is such a, a, a clear gospel passage, right? The recognition of sin, the grace of Christ, the response of faith, right? It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And the reality is, is that invitation to follow, that invitation to become a fisher of men stands even today. It's the same invitation that you and I have. Even though Jesus is not standing next to us in the flesh, it is the same invitation that he extends to us. 
There's another story of a miraculous catch in the Bible. Uh, it is actually the, the passage that serves as the epilogue and the final chapter of the Gospel of John. And, and some commentators think that these are actually the same story. They have just been sort of remembered differently or remembered um, for, for, for commentators that don't believe in, in the, the supernatural uh, authority of Scripture, that they would say that they've even been miswritten or, or misremembered somehow or something. Um, but they'll say it's the same story just told in two different places at two different ways or whatever. I, I don't think that's the case. I think these are two different instances um, of, of a miraculous catch. Um, but I do think that in the inspiration of, this, of, the, of the scriptures, um, they are meant to be remembered together. Even though they sit in two different gospels, they are meant to be thought about in the canon of scripture together. Because this is what happens at the end of John's gospel. Jesus has been resurrected. But the disciples have been told to wait for the spirit before they go on and do anything, right? So this is the gap between, between the resurrection and, and between Pentecost, okay? And like we said a minute ago, Peter's not much of a waiter, right? Um, uh, he's not much of the, he's a doer, right? And so he has gone back to fishing. And, and maybe that is out of frustration with, with, uh, with the slowness of, of, or what he perceives as God's slowness to, to get this ball rolling. Or maybe it's just because he's going to fill his time constructively with something, um, until this thing that Jesus has said is going to happen happens. And guess what? They're out on the lake again and they've caught nothing again. And when all of a sudden a man appears on the shore and says, try casting your net on the other side which, again, results in an incredible catch. So, of course, it's Jesus, right? And the disciples recognize this, and they come into shore, uh, and they sit, and they eat with him. And then Jesus has a specific question for Peter, and you may remember it. Jesus says, do you love me more than these? It's interesting, because when you go to the passage, the these is a little ambiguous. Is he talking about the fish? Is he talking about the boats? Is he talking about his fellow disciples? Is he talking about all of it, the industry, the moment, the everything? Do you love me more than this? And Peter says, well, of course I do. You know that I do. And so then Jesus three times tells him, then feed my sheep. Why would different gospel writers begin the story of Jesus calling of disciples and end the story of Jesus and disciples on this same note. Go and be fishers of men. Go and feed my sheep. Be shepherds of men. I think it's because the invitation and the call haven't changed. It begins and ends in the same place. And Jesus is saying, I'm still here. I'm still bringing in the catch. And I still want you to be a part of it, not only to be fishers of men, but shepherds of men as well. And so what we talk about so often at College Street, right? God has called you. God has called you to be disciples who go out and disciple. The catch is his responsibility. The catch is in his power. You need only answer that call. And no, you're not worthy of it. It is an honor for you to be called. 
And you're not gifted for the task either. You may look at your own life and you may say, man, I don't know how to do any of this stuff. And I would feel like an idiot put in any of these situations. You're not wrong. But Jesus in his great mercy has called you. And he will work through you and he will bring in his catch. And so what he invites us to do is to answer that call. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, uh, we thank you for this story uh, that we find in, in your holy word. God, we thank you for um, what is revealed about Jesus, about his, um, God, his heart, his character, um, the way he looks to us. God, uh, you, you know us. You know what we are. Um, you know the ways that we mess up. There is nothing about us that is hidden from your sight. God, and yet in, in the person of Christ, you, you have not looked on us, um, with judgment. You have not looked on us with condemnation. God, but Jesus looks to us and says, do not fear. I have a place for you. I call you into my service. I want you to be a part of this great plan that I have of bringing, um, many sons and daughters into the kingdom. God, help us to answer that call. God, it is easy for us to feel guilt when it comes to, to the, the calling of, of discipleship and evangelism, of, of serving and loving our neighbors, God, because there's so many ways that we fail at it. And yet again, you don't look to us and say, I told you so. You look to us and say, do not fear, but answer the call. Father, help us to do that. Help us to see the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, the acceptance that we have in Jesus Christ. God, and out of that, out of that great joy, um, out of the great um, beauty and glory that we witness in Jesus Christ, God, help us to live the lives that he has called us to live. We thank you, God. We praise you. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. Christ the sure and steady anchor In the fury of the storm When the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn in the suffering in the sorrow when my sinking hopes are few i will hold fast to the anchor it shall never be the sure and steady anchor while the tempest rages on 
with temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won deeper still then goes the anchor though i justly stand accused i will hold fast to the anchor it shall never be sure and steady anchor through the floods of unbelief hopeless somehow oh my soul now lift your eyes to calvary this my ballast of assurance see his love forever proved I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. Christ the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind in life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Christ the sure of our salvation ever faithful ever true we will hold fast to the anchor it shall never be Thanks again for joining us tonight. Um, hope you've had a good week and hope you have a good week uh, this coming week. Um, again, if you if you didn't catch the very beginning uh, of the message, um, uh, just another announcement. Um, we will try to meet together next Sunday at Mother Church at Pleasant Grove Baptist Church um, for a, a together in-person um, uh, service. That'll be at a regular time at 5 p.m., on Sunday night. Um, but if you are planning to attend that service, if you wouldn't mind sending me a message, either text or Facebook messenger or whatever, um, send me a message and let me know that you're coming, how many people in your family are going to come. Um, and again, we encourage you that, that, um, if, if you are, are a little anxious about coming, um, just yet, and that's okay. Don't feel like we're, we're pushing or, or forcing you to come. Um, certainly if you, uh, when you come, if, if you want to wear, um, a mask or, or, um, whatever, we'll be practicing social distancing and kind of splitting up in the pews to where, where we got, uh, some distance between each other. Um, we're going to try to do our best to mitigate all those kind of things. Um, but if you're going to be able to join us, um, then, then drop me a line and let me know, um, that you're going to be there. Um, again, hope you have a great week here. This benediction, uh, as we depart tonight, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.